Just a quick update before we dive into our next episode. Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its thousands of selections, and I use it all the time for myself and some of the reference material we use on the show. In the spirit of transparency, we receive a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I have personally read or listened to. I'll include my suggestion at the end of this episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 111 of History of the Marine Corps, Desegregation in the Corps, Part 3. In this episode, we finish up our series on the history of desegregation. We begin with a few stories about the Korean War, the continuing issue with the stewards' MOS, racial tensions in the Vietnam War, and end with some current milestones. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. When the Korean War kicked off, the Marine Corps had a strength of a little over 74,000. Out of the total strength of the Corps, 1,502 were black Marines, making up about 2% of the force. 1,075 of these Marines served in various general duty assignments, while 427 took on the role of stewards. As the war escalated and reached its peak, the Corps experienced a significant increase in strength, skyrocketing to almost 250,000 personnel. The number of black Marines also increased to 14,731, accounting for 6% of the total force. They served in the Pusan perimeter and fought during the Chosen Reservoir. General Oliver P. Smith stated, quote, We had no racial troubles. The men did whatever they were qualified to do. There were communicators, there were cooks, there were truck drivers, there was plain infantry. They did everything, and they did a good job because they were integrated, and they were with good people. Two of these Negroes got the Navy Cross. There was no fooling. They were real citations, and there were plenty of silver stars and bronze stars, and what have you. I had no complaint on their performance of duty." Unquote. One of the notable Marines Smith mentioned is Private First Class A.C. Clark. During the Korean War, Clark earned a silver star for his remarkable actions on December 13, 1952. While on patrol, he courageously provided cover for the evacuation of two wounded Marines. Clark single-handedly eliminated an enemy machine gun position and killed three enemy soldiers. He was wounded twice in the process. Additionally, Clark had previously received a Bronze Star for his selfless act of rescuing his platoon leader during another patrol four months earlier. The Korean War saw multiple milestones for black Marines. Lieutenant William K. Jenkins etched his name in history as the first black Marine officer to lead Marines in combat, 
another trailblazer, 2nd Lieutenant Frank Peterson Jr., became the first black Marine pilot, flying an impressive 64 combat missions in the Attack Virgin Corsair. Peterson earned a Distinguished Flying Cross and six Air Medals, showcasing his exceptional contributions to the war effort. In February 1954, Edgar Huff, with the 2nd Battalion 8th Marines, made history as the first black Marine to serve as a sergeant major in an infantry battalion. However, this milestone came with challenges. There was a white master sergeant who wasn't selected for the role, and he stated he would rather retire than serve under a black man. The commanding officer quickly contacted Marine Corps headquarters, which reviewed the master sergeant's value to the Corps. Ultimately, they concluded that his usefulness to the Marine Corps had ended, which resulted in his retirement and removal from service. This marked a significant change from how things operated just 15 years prior. Despite these advancements, traces of segregation persisted with the stewards branch of the Marine Corps. During Korea, 538 black Marines served as stewards. The men assigned to this unit were still recruited under steward duty only enlistment contracts, and they were exclusively black. This led to suspicions that the system was rigged, with test scores possibly manipulated to assign specific Marines to this role. An investigation was conducted, and it uncovered some truth to these claims. In the early 1950s, Technical Sergeants James E. Johnson and Leo McDowell offered several suggestions to improve the quality of life for stewards. Their concerns caught the attention of Major General W.P.T. Hill, the Quartermaster General of the Marine Corps. In 1953, General Hill invited Johnson and McDowell to headquarters and appointed them as members of the Steward Inspection and Demonstration Team. Their primary task was to assess steward life within the Marine Corps. Their findings are pretty interesting, especially in our time of binary thinking. Although there were flaws, Johnson and McDowell pointed out some positives in their assessment. Quote, Those young men who were stewards could make extra money because they had the skills. They were good bartenders, and they always made extra money. They were good waiters, and they could go to any restaurant and they made money. They were good caterers, and they made extra money when they went out. Unquote. The inspection team also noted that as the number of white Marines who served in the steward's role increased, perceptions from black Marines began to change. Johnson stated, quote, They felt they were being discriminated against because they were all black. That was the real hang-up, you see. But the moment they opened it, they said, Okay, fine. It's alright. Because their feeling was that if it was so good, why don't you have some of the whites in it? Unquote. The investigation team recommended that those who desired to transfer from steward duty to other roles should be granted that opportunity. I thought this was a fair recommendation. But interestingly, only a small percentage, between 5-10%, to 10%, accepted that offer, providing further support for Johnson's conclusion. Congress took significant steps in passing bills to eliminate segregation in various aspects of American society, including public recreational facilities, public transportation, and school desegregation. 
However, these progressive legislative changes face strong oppositions in many parts of the country. As the Vietnam War unfolded, this tension permeated the ranks of the Marine Corps, leading to a challenging environment for black Marines in the 1960s. They felt discriminated against when it came to promotions, military occupational specialties, and even the Uniform Code of Military Justice. As a result, black Marines began to isolate themselves within the Corps, and confrontations between racially divided groups, sometimes ranging up to 50 people, started to occur. Camp Lejeune became the epicenter of this turmoil. From January to August 1969 alone, 160 reported incidents of racially motivated assaults, muggings, and robberies took place. In response to this escalating problem, a committee of seven officers was formed to address the issue. Their report produced four significant conclusions. One, that bigotry and prejudice were prevalent within the Marine Corps and among white business owners in the surrounding communities. Two, senior Marines hindered young Marines in their efforts to confront racial problems. Three, there was a failure to comply with the letter and spirit of the law. And four, effective leadership needed to be improved. Major General Michael Ryan issued a division order titled Fostering Unit Pride and Esprit within the 2nd Marine Division Fleet Marine Force. But despite his efforts, the order failed to make a meaningful impact. Just three weeks after it was issued, a party at a service club turned into a violent incident. Approximately 100 black Marines and 75 white Marines were gathered to listen to a live band. At 2240, a Marine, covered in blood, burst into the club claiming he had been attacked by black Marines. Over the next 30 minutes, 15 more white Marines were assaulted at six locations. Tragically, one corporal lost his life due to injuries sustained in an attack. 13 individuals were convicted of rioting, disobedience, or assault. One Marine deserted before facing trial, and one was convicted of involuntary manslaughter, receiving a nine-year sentence of hard labor. Similar racial incidents occurred between white and black Marines in Hawaii, Okinawa, and even Vietnam, where there were instances of fragging, where black Marines threw grenades into the tents of white officers and non-commissioned officers. However, this problem was only present with units in the rear. Similar to World War II and the Korean War, a man's skin color meant nothing when his life was on the line. But these instances were few and far between and there are far more stories of heroism than of hatred. During Vietnam, five Marines of African-American descent earned the prestigious Medal of Honor. James Anderson Jr., Oscar P. Austin, Rodney M. Davis, Robert H. Jenkins Jr., and Ralph H. Johnson. Another Marine, John Canley, initially received the Navy Cross, but it was later upgraded to the Medal of Honor in 2017 at the request of Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis and authorized by President Trump. This brought the total number of black Marines receiving the Medal of Honor during the Vietnam War to six. Private First Class James Anderson Jr. from Compton, California, was the first African-American Marine to be awarded the nation's highest honor in Vietnam. He was a rifleman in Company F, 
2nd Battalion, 3rd Marines. And on February 28, 1967, he showed exceptional courage and selflessness when he saved his fellow Marines from a deadly grenade attack, sacrificing his own life. General Leonard F. Chapman Jr. acknowledged a problem within the Marine Corps. Quote, There is no question about it, though. We've got a problem. We thought we had eliminated discrimination in the Marine Corps, and we are still determined to do so. It is apparent that we have not been as successful as we thought. Unquote. The Marine Corps explored every solution it could think of. They even allowed Afros, as long as they met grooming standards. I don't know what that looks like, but it sounds ridiculous. General Chapman issued an ambiguous order that somewhat prohibited the Black Power salute. He stated, No actions, signs, symbols, gestures, and words, which are contrary to tradition, will be permitted during formations or when rendering military courtesies to colors, the national anthem, or individuals. But Chapman contradicted himself when he also added, quote, Individual signs between groups of individuals will be accepted for what they are, gestures of recognition and unity, unquote. The Commandant reemphasized that the Marine Corps had not and would not tolerate discrimination, nor would it relax the firm, impartial discipline that had always been its standard. At the end of the day, there wasn't a single policy or idea that stopped the violence. In 1967, the Marine Corps only had 155 black officers, a small number compared to the total officer strength of 23,000. Recognizing the need for greater visibility of black Marines, the Assistant Secretary of Defense proposed doubling the Corps officer size. Major Edward L. Green, the first black Marine instructor at the Naval Academy, took the initiative to launch a formal instruction in race relations. This instruction eventually evolved into the dreaded human relations training, and it applied to Marines of all ranks, from fresh recruits to the Commandant of the Marine Corps. To gain a deeper understanding of the interracial issues within the Corps, the American Institutes of Research conducted a 17-month study. They visited six major bases across the United States and interviewed Marines of various ranks and races. Their finding revealed that many Marines believed the Corps' challenges reflected the broader views of American society. This conclusion aligned with the realities of the time. On November 10, 1971, the report recommended the establishment of a formal human relations course to be given to all Marines presented through a live discussion method guided by extensively trained instructors. While it's safe to say that most of us would rather be doing anything else than attending mandatory HR classes, they did work. In 1969, an equal opportunity branch was established at Marine Corps headquarters, along with a special assistant to the Commandant for Minority Affairs. The Marine Corps Human Relations Institute was later founded at MCRD San Diego on July 1, 1972, and 47 instructors were trained to conduct and manage seminars. John McGowan, a Marine officer with 1-7, stated, quote, While the town of Oceanside and the surrounding areas didn't practice the discrimination the Marines on the East Coast endured from the town of Jacksonville, 
Believe me, we had the same type of on-base problems. The muggings, the fights, the unbelievable number of non-judicial punishments and court-martials awarded to black Marines, and McNamara's 100,000. The problems we had on the West Coast were the same as those on the East Coast and overseas. Then we tried to fix it with the Human Relations Program. Unquote. McNamara's 100,000 mentioned by McGowan was a program pushed by the Defense Secretary that required the armed forces to accept individuals who couldn't speak English, had a low mental aptitude, minor physical impairments, or were slightly over or underweight. Its implementation did not go over well, and we'll cover that story when we get to Vietnam. The goal was for every Marine to complete 20 hours of human relations instruction annually. On June 6, 1972, Commandant General Robert Cushman stated, quote, Our Corps is in the front line of the nation's effort to improve the areas of understanding and cooperation among all Americans. I view our human relations efforts as major steps in helping the Corps to attain that environment of equal opportunity, understanding, brotherhood, and professionalism so vital to our future effectiveness. That environment, when combined with an open, two-way channel of communication among all Marines, will permit us to devote our total energies toward maintaining what our nation needs and expects from us, a combat-ready Corps of Marines. In the 1980s, the Corps shifted its focus for career development and progression for all minorities. They reviewed the MOS selection process, basic school performance, assignments, promotions, performance evaluations, and other areas to ensure equal treatment among Marines. The 1980s marked significant milestones as well. Peterson, the pioneering black Marine pilot mentioned earlier, achieved the rank of Brigadier General, adding yet another first to his remarkable record. Major Charles E. Bolden Jr. was selected as an astronaut and logged over 680 hours in space. When the 90s rolled around, the debate changed and arguments started to erupt about equal opportunity. Marines held public debates through articles in popular publications that catered to Marines. In April 1993, Captain Harrington wrote an article in the Marine Corps Gazette titled, An Equal Opportunity Misconception and the Accession Selection Paradox. He argued that, quote, There exists a paradox in the Marine Corps' equal opportunity philosophy with respect to officer accessions and selections. The paradox is simply that the Corps accesses the best qualified within race, ethnic, gender, group guidelines. However, it selects only the best qualified for advancements to the next highest grade, irrespective of race, ethnic, or gender group. The consequence of these two policies what I like to call the accession selection paradox, is the crux of an equal opportunity misconception. Unquote. This article was the start of the debate. Shortly after Harrington's article was published, Samuel Strotman wrote an article titled Minority Officer Procurement and the Officer Selection Officer, where he made a similar argument and called the Corps' recruiting process seriously flawed. Later that same year, the head of the officer procurement branch, Lieutenant Colonel Reynolds Peel, rebutted the two articles in his own, 
He stated, quote, There is not a quality problem in officer recruiting. The officers that are recruited possess the requisite skills to be competitive, beginning with their experience at the basic school. It is essential that this quality issue be critically evaluated in light of the dangerous misconceptions and stigmas that may develop when reading the two articles published in April, especially as they relate to the EL composite score and the scholastic aptitude test scores, unquote. In early 1994, Eugene Herrera published his opinion in an article titled The Minority Controversy, Enough is Enough. Herrera acknowledged that racism did indeed exist in the Corps. However, he stated, quote, The Marine Corps is a fighting machine, not a social experiment in political correctness. I really doubt the majority of Americans want this fine organization to mirror society, unquote. Throughout the 90s, multiple articles were written about this topic, and numerous boards, studies, conferences, and seminars were held to help mitigate this ongoing issue. But while the senior brass kept developing more bureaucratic solutions, the younger Marines kept kicking ass. During Operation Desert Storm, Captain Eddie Ray, a company commander in the Light Armored Infantry Battalion, led his unit in a decisive victory against several Iraqi counterattacks. This 10-hour battle led to the capture of more than 250 Iraqi soldiers. Ray earned the Navy Cross for his actions. Lieutenant Colonel Alfonso Diggs Jr. became the first black officer to command a tank battalion while leading that unit in combat during Desert Storm. Colonel Clifford L. Stanley became the first African-American to command at the regimental level when he took charge of the 1st Marine Regiment on February 29, 1992. And in June 1995, Colonel Alphonse Davis served as the first African-American to command Officer Candidate School. Milestones continue to this day. On August 6, 2022, Michael E. Langley was promoted to general making him the first black Marine to be promoted to a four-star general. Throughout the history of the Corps, a significant portion of time has been devoted to debating the eligibility of specific demographics to serve. In this vast sea of opinions and intriguing arguments, it is easy to lose sight of the profound human element that underlies these discussions. Lost in all of that noise lies a glaring oversight the firm determination and unwavering patriotism of these men and women, whose sole desire is to dedicate themselves to the service of the Corps and their beloved country. Sergeant Major Huff, the first black Marine to complete 30 years of regular service, was there from the beginning. Rising through the ranks, he experienced a Marine Corps that many did not. He summed up his service with a simple yet profound statement, quote, the Marine Corps has been good to me, and I feel I have been good to the Marine Corps. Unquote. Another notable figure, Sergeant Major Hashmark Johnson, coincidentally Huff's brother-in-law, they both married twin sisters, served 32 years in the armed forces, with 17 years dedicated to the Marine Corps. Tragically, he passed away from a heart attack, while addressing a dinner of the Camp Lejeune's chapter of the Montford Point Marine Association in 1972. As a tribute to his service, 
the Montford Point facility in Camp Lejeune was renamed Camp Johnson. Johnson summarized his legacy perfectly with these words, quote, I am somebody, and I have done something, unquote. Thanks for listening. This episode's audiobook is Goodbye to All That by Robert Graves. This book was first published in 1929 and chronicles Graves' experiences as a young officer in the British Army during the First World War. The author provides a first-hand account of the war, describing the harsh realities, the camaraderie among soldiers, and the trauma and disillusionment he experienced. He vividly portrays the horrors of trench warfare, the loss of friends, and the physical and psychological toll it took on him and his comrades. The book also delves into Graves' personal life, including his relationships and his struggle to find meaning and direction in the aftermath of the war. The book's title reflects Graves' disillusionment with the society and values of the pre-war era, which he believed were shattered by the war. The book offers a critical perspective on the war and its impact on individuals and society. Visit audibletrial.com slash marine history for a free copy of this audiobook and a free 30-day trial. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and tell us why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.